I want to start with a question. How can you tell someone is favored by God? How can you tell just by looking at someone's life from the outside? How can you tell if someone has favor from God, if God is pleased with them, if God loves them? This is an age-old question that across all of history, all continents, people have theorized and made judgments if God was pleased by someone or not, or their deity or deities was pleased by someone or not. And throughout history, the, the mindset generally went like this. If your life was good, it, it was because God was pleased with you. If your life was bad, it's because God was angry at you. You must have done something wrong, or maybe your parents did something wrong. And so if you were a farmer and your crops failed that year, then the assumption from the community would be, wonder what he did last night. Wonder what he did or his parents did. Or if your marriage fell apart, there must have been something that you did and God is now judging you or on and on, anything negative. And, and in, in general, in most cultures throughout history, if you were just poor, there would be a general sense of, of, of condemnation that God has forsaken you or you have blown it because of your own sin, or something like that. That has been the mindset throughout most religions and throughout history. And in fact, some would even say that if you are poor, God must be judging you and cursing you, and therefore I should not help you because then I would be going against the very will of God. Some people would even have that mindset. And we will actually see that in our passage today. And sadly, the reality is that most Christians that I meet and me for many years, even after I became a Christian, functioned like this. When my life was going well, I would be like, God, you, you are real. You are good. You are, there's no one like you. I'm just like, how great is that? I'm singing hard. I'm, I'm loving God. But when things are going poorly, then all of a sudden my heart is, is, is doubting. Is God real? Is he good? You guys tracking with me? Anyone ever felt that way? That our sense of God's goodness and his reality ebbs and flows based on the station and the, the goodness of our life. I think all of us are guilty of that reality. So today in our passage, we actually get to see eternal reality. We get to zoom out and see what is opposite, what truly is reality and what is often opposite of what we and what culture assumes. We're going to get a glimpse of eternal reality. Now, let me, as always, set the context, because context is so important for us to be faithful in understanding what God is actually saying to us. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching on a very, very wonky parable that many of you guys were here for, the parable of the shrewd manager, right? And it's, it's strange. It's still strange. But what we saw is that the main point here is that there are two kinds of people in the world. The children of light, children of God, and the children of darkness, children of the world. And the children of the world use all their energy, all their time, all their talents to ensure that they can guarantee a good life on this earth right now. They want to ensure a good future for their life. And what Jesus does, he says, look at how much time and energy and wisdom they do in ensuring their good life. I want you to spend that kind of energy in ensuring your eternal security and future. Don't let them out secure true reality and true futures. And, and then Jesus also makes these striking comments that you can't love God and love money at the same time. They can't be competing. And so from that place, the text 
goes into verse 14. So it's on the screen, or if you have your Bible open, I hope you do. Remember, always check my work. Check my work. Don't take my word. I'm not LeVar from Reading Rainbow, right? Don't take my word for it. Open your Bible and check my work. Because I'm saying weighty things that have eternal consequences. And you want to make sure I'm actually speaking God's word and not my own word. So make sure you have your Bibles open. Phones are a blessing, but have your Bible open. And so Jesus speaks these hefty parables about money and how they connect with eternity and hearts. And remember, Jesus speaks about money over and over again, around 800 times in this ministry. Why? Does he have a thing about money? No, no, no. He has a thing about our hearts. And hearts are so deeply connected to our money. So he talks about money a lot because he cares about our hearts. He cares about our worship. Now, look at how the Pharisees respond in verse 14 to that, those parables. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. They were lovers of money. The Pharisees loved money, and so by default, according to Jesus, they hated Jesus. Remember, it's binary. There is no third alternative option. Either it's love or hatred. That's Jesus lays down the gauntlet. It's one or the other. But the problem is, for the Pharisees, and the problem for us, is that almost no one you meet will claim and admit that they love money. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've heard everything under the sun, but I have never to this day had someone confess to me that they struggle with greed. It's something that apparently no American thinks that we struggle with. I remember growing up watching Christian TV, and I would hear these TV preachers say, say this. They would say, God doesn't mind if you have things. He minds if those things have you. And I remember everybody would roar with approval. Yes, amen. Things shouldn't have us. And I would be like, hey, yeah, man, that sounds good. Yeah. But why do we all assume things don't have us? That's a good preacher line. And it's true. God doesn't mind if you have things. He minds if they have you. But why do we assume that nothing has us? (laughs) If something has you, it's likely you don't know it. (laughs) Wealth, the love of money, is deceitful. means that you won't actually know it's happening oftentimes. You'll just see the fruits of it. Now, I digress, but this is important because Jesus is going to give us a picture of what the love of money ultimately turns into in eternity gives us a glimpse of if if you continue on that path of loving money over people, and especially over God, what your fate will be. And if you are curious, if you love money more than God or things have you, I would just suggest very gently that you ask people who know you well. Don't ask yourself. That's a good place to start, but go a step further. Ask people who know you. Now, one more qualifier before we jump into the passage. Whenever we talk about rich people or rich men, which remember chapter 16 repeats rich person like three times. It's a big theme in chapter 16. I think, I know our demographic of our church, very few of us would fit in the category of rich person in our, our, our nation's census. But the reality, compared to world history and other nations, we are rich here. So don't let the, don't, don't compare yourself to Bill Gates and say, I'm off the hook. All of us are on the hook. All of us uh, would be considered rich, even if you would say you were poor comparatively. 
So in response to the Pharisees' love of money, look at verse 19. Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted, I love this word, sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Maybe you've heard this parable or this story before. It's kind of hard to classify if it's a parable or just a story Jesus is sharing because they use the name Lazarus, and usually parables don't use actual names. And there's some other evidence in this text that would go either way. It's a parable or not, but reality, regardless, it's, it's showing us something true that God's trying to teach us. But look at the contrast between these two people. There's a significant contrast. Look, one is clothed in the finest designer clothing. This purple back then, you, you didn't have synthetics to do it. You'd have to literally crush snails and to get that purple dye. I mean, this was expensive clothing. This was a designer clothing that only royalty would typically wear. And this guy's feasting every day. Every day. On the other hand, Lazarus is homeless. He's clothed with sores. Instead of designer clothing, he's clothed with sores. And he's just laying there, and dogs are licking his sores. He just hoped to eat the crumbs and garbage from the rich man's table. And in the phrase, at his gate, he was laid, was laid. This signifies that he was most likely crippled, lame, and people just cast him at the at the city, at the guy's gate, hoping that the rich man would have some compassion. This, he would be a, a pitiful sight to behold of. Either would elicit inside of you compassion or contempt. You must have done something wrong. God must be cursing you or deep compassion. The fact that he lay at this gate makes clear a few more things. That one, the rich man was mega rich. Having a gate, I don't have a gate, okay? It's rare to have a gate today. It was even more rare to have a gate then. So this guy's mega rich. And number two, that this rich man undoubtedly knew Lazarus. Undoubtedly, he saw him begging. Undoubtedly, he saw his eyes at times. Undoubtedly, he closed his heart to him over the years. But also notice that there's nothing in this text that says that the rich man was a serial murderer, swindling people, a thief. It just merely highlights his selfishness. See, it wasn't sinful that he had wealth. It was sinful that he was selfish. It would have been nothing for him to just send a servant out with a plate full of food to share with Lazarus. Nothing. It wouldn't have done a dent in his net worth. And he ignored and closed his heart towards him. And perhaps he rationalized even religiously and said, you know what, God must have cursed him, and so I can't help him. And Jesus has already taught us what followers should do in situations like this on the screen. Luke 14, Ross preached a powerful sermon on this. If you haven't heard it, check this out a couple, about a month or so ago. But when you give a feast, invite your friends? Nope. Invite the rich? Nope. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because, why? Because they can't repay you. <laughs> How countercultural is that? <laughs> For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This, this is what Jesus calls his followers to do. Very the opposite of what the rich man did. Now let's look at a great reversal. 
Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Notice it doesn't say he was buried. He just probably died and they probably threw him into the valley of Hinnom. The rich man also died and was buried, probably with lots of fanfare, probably with, with hired mourners, professional mourners that would cry and, 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 and lavish banquets in his honor. In verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, in a minute, we're going to get into the details of Hades and Abraham's side and what is all this stuff and, and zoom into that. But, but first, let's consider the ridiculous reversal of this situation. One pastor put it this way. I'm just going to read it because it's helpful. You have a poor man who suffers and a rich man who's satisfied. And then you have a rich man who suffers and a poor man who's satisfied. You have a poor man who's tormented and a rich man who's happy. And then you have a poor man who's happy and a rich man who's tormented. You have a poor man who's humiliated and a rich man who's honored. Then you have a rich man who's humiliated and a poor man who's honored. You have a poor man who wants a crumb, a rich man who feasts, and then you have a poor man who's at a feast and a rich man who just wants a drop of water. You have a poor man who has no dignity in death, not even a burial, and then you have a rich man who has dignity in death. Then you have a poor man who has dignity after death, and a rich man who has no dignity after death, not even a name. And the great African, African bishop Augustine says, there's no name listed here because his name wasn't written in the book of life. But God knew his name. That's why Lazarus' name is here, and the rich man is not. The text further clarifies in verse 25 this reality. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus, like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Do you see that reversal? Good for the rich man, bad for Lazarus, and then it's shifted. One is now in comfort, and one is now in anguish. There are times, church, where it feels like life is not fair. Like the rich get away with everything. Their schemes get away with things. They have all the power. They have the fancy trips. And, and that Christians, we, we get the short end. But let this passage reorient your heart this morning about the great reversal that is soon to come. The great reversal that most rich have no clue is coming soon. And that we, as his church, must not exalt what the world exalts and knows that God has a different metric of success, different metric of love. The, the text doesn't say here clearly, but it's a very safe assumption that Lazarus loved God. He trusted God in his promises. There's some things you have to read into it because of the brevity of this text. But, but note this. God allowed Lazarus' life to be a life full of suffering, disdain, and rejection. And he still loved him. God had in his mindset the big picture of eternity, of how he will be seated at a table and forever honored and favored and loved and have peace. And I think this is important for us because it's a great reminder that our metric, the way we measure how much God loves us, must not be our temporary circumstances, church. We, you got to hear that because I know all of us, 
especially me, fall into the trap to believe that God's love for us is based off of our relationship status or our job status or our bank account status or our health or whatever. Let this parable or let this story zoom you out into the eternal perspective of what God has in mind, of having eternal happiness for you. And that may mean a hard life in the present. The rich man lived very wisely in order to secure his temporary future. But he was a fool in regard to securing his eternal future. My hope is the opposite for you, church. Again, it's a call for us to consider. Are you using all of your God-given gifts, your attention, your time, your talents, your, your money, in order to, 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 to ensure heaven on earth right now, to, to establish your own kingdom? Or... Are you laying it all down at the king's feet so you can store up treasure in heaven that can never be taken for you? Now, let's, let's start unpacking these two locations these two men are in. Okay, so we got Abraham's side, or in some translations, if you grew up with the KJV, Abraham's bosom. All right, funny, I know. But what are they? Okay, Abraham's bosom or side. What is going on here? Let me be brief, because I had like a thousand words I had to cut from a manuscript. So Abraham, amen, yeah. <clears throat> um, no, the right response from you guys has been no. Oh, no, more, Sam. Okay. My understanding scripturally is that there right now is a temporary heaven. Okay? There's a temporary hell and a temporary heaven. Hades, is it one name for it? Or Gehenna? It's for hell. And then for heaven, it could also be called Abraham's side. Okay, and then when Jesus returns and makes all things new, heaven will come down. That's why we have this weird messianic. I, I, I know some people are like, what is your symbol there? It looks like um, Masonic or something like that. But it's the new Jerusalem, new heaven coming down onto earth. And, and we will dwell with Jesus on the renewed earth forever. Where there's nothing sad and everything's glad and no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. Okay, so right now in the temporary state, there's such a thing called heaven or Abraham's side. Now, if you want to be a little more technical, it's possible that Abraham's bosom or side was only a temporary reality for God's people until Jesus came and was resurrected. Because then after that, every other time you see a glimpse of heaven, Abraham is not emphasized, but Jesus is. Like Stephen stoning, Jesus is standing up there. So, so that's the emphasis after Jesus is resurrected. And maybe one way to consider this, why, because I know if you're thinking carefully, you're like, why is it Abraham's side? Why isn't it God's side? Well, Abraham was the father of Israel. And so being at the bosom of Abraham, okay, it's kind of this picture of like leaning on his chest. It's this picture of being near uh, the father of the nation. And, and, and you'll see later on Lazarus, uh, the rich man calling out to Abraham as a father, and why that's important is because many Jews believe that because they had the Jewish blood, that God inherently would favor them and set them apart to be in heaven with him. And so it's interesting that the, the, the name Abraham is, um, is highlighted here because it's trying to help those who are God's people, those who were under the old covenant promises, um, it would relate with them in a way that if it was Jesus' side or God's side, that, that it didn't. I know that there's a lot there, and, and if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you more, but I want to get to the meat of this passage. So come talk to me if you're like, you didn't make any sense with what you just said, okay? So just, just let's be clear, there is a 
intermediate heaven right now that people are in, and then one day when Jesus returns for the second time and judges all and makes all things right, heaven will come down onto this earth. So ultimately, when people say earth is not our home, kind of. This kind of earth, but this earth will be your home one day. All right, tracking? Kind of? Okay, all right, come talk to me if you're confused. Now, Hades is another name for hell or Gehenna, and, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's called Sheol, but in the New Covenant, New Testament, it's called Hades or Gehenna. And now what the Bible regularly does is it takes um, well-known pictures in their culture and draws a parallel to what hell is like. So Gehenna is connected to the Valley of Hinnom. Now, I know some of you guys are checking out right now, and it's hot in here, and I promise I did not ask them to turn up the heat to kind of like manufacture something for this sermon, but it's always hot in here. But the Valley of Hinnom, for, for many years, kings would sacrifice their, Israelites would sacrifice babies to Molech and other neighboring gods. It was a horrible place. It's on the side of Jerusalem. And eventually it became a desecrated, desolate, cursed place where people would throw all the trash and it would be burning all the time. The stench would be horrific. And so when Jesus uses terms like Gehenna, he's helping them get a visual and a, a, a mental picture of what hell is like. He's drawing from things that they can relate with to saying it's kind of like that, but nowhere near like that. Let me just give you a taste. So that's what Jesus is doing oftentimes using these languages and even using language from Greek literature to help people draw imagery so they can understand. See, the Bible is using these tangible examples to give the audience a, a glimpse of eternal realities that are unfathomable for us. So let's look at what Hades is like or hell is like, the anguish of the flame. Look at verse 24. I just try to synthesize like 2,000 words of stuff, so I don't feel like that was really clear. So if you have questions, come talk to me. But I'm trying to serve you by getting to the meat of the text. Verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I'm anguished in this flame. A couple of quick observations. This rich man is conscious. He's conscious. He's dying, but never dead. And look back at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So, so this is something that's really bone chilling. Apparently, in Hades, in hell, at least during this time, there's a way to see heaven simultaneously. But let me show you in Luke 13. This is not just in this story, but Luke 13, verse 28 on the screen. Should be. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the people, prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. I, I never considered this, or at least I don't remember, but just as horrible as the flame of being in torment day and night would be the torment of seeing in front of you what you could have had, but what you do not have. The rich man, though, does not request to leave. Somehow he knows he can't. He doesn't say, get me out of here. He just wants some relief. Imagine being so much heat and so much pain and so much terror that the, it would mean the world to you if someone could just put some water on your tongue. I mean, do we even have a category for this kind of pain? Just, just give me some water to touch my tongue because I'm in so much anguish. 
contrary to some popular teachers out there, there will be no end. Revelation 14.11 makes this maybe one of the most clear passages to understand this reality. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark on his name, of its name. This is, this is not something I delight in sharing with you, church. It's something I, I shrink back at times to my shame. Because this, who, who, who can imagine such terror? Eternally conscious torment, day and night, no rest. One popular author and pastor put it this way, and I'm going to just read it to you. And I, and I just encourage you to close your eyes to hear the reality of this. And if, if you say, Sam, you're trying to manipulate me, preacher. No, I'm trying to help you get a grasp of reality that you are often blind to, that I am often blind to. So I encourage you to close your eyes. Check this out. Imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven where your pain would be as much greater than that occasion by accidentally touching a coal of fire since the heat is that much greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, full of fire, as full within as bright coal of fire, all the while full of your senses. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If we were to be measured by an hourglass, how long would the glass seem to be running? And after that had endured even for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had just yet to endure another 14? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full of 24 hours? And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you would endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure for a thousand years. Oh, then how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you would bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than it was at first and that you never, never should be delivered. But your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this illustration represents. How then will the heart of a poor creature sink under it? How utterly inexpressible and inconceivable must be the sinking of the soul be in such a case? These are realities that I want to avoid regularly, church, to be honest. But we must not avoid it. We must not be ashamed of these realities. God is a God of unfathomable grace and mercy but he's also a God of inflexible justice and terrible wrath. Just wrath. Listen, if Jesus is not your supreme treasure, your Lord, your Savior, this is your fate. I don't say that in a threatening way. I say that with every ounce of love in my heart. I say that with a plead that this is your fate. If you reject Jesus... If he is not everything to you. But the good news is if you are not sure you have peace with this God, you have an opportunity to get right with him today and to receive his forgiveness, mercy, and love. Whatever you do today, please do not leave this room. We're going to talk about it more. But grab a member and tell them of your state. Tell them of your predicament. And we'd love to share with you good news. Now, let's continue. We'll get back to this in the end. 
Let's continue making observations of this text. Let me clarify something that's really helpful and important. Hell does not change hearts. Notice the attitude the rich man has towards Lazarus. He's still treating him like a lackey. Abraham, would you send Lazarus to, to serve me? After decades, maybe, of neglect, he has a chance to say to Lazarus, Oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry. I didn't treat you as I ought to have. Forgive me. He just says nothing of, of, of the sort. I think this is really important because hell is not full of people who just made good, bad, mad mistakes or some mistakes or pretty good people. It's populated by people who fundamentally reject God, whose hearts are hardened towards him. Like the rich man, they're not, they're not people in hell repenting to God. The Lazarus isn't here saying, God, I'm so sorry I, I ruined my life. I'm so sorry I rejected you. I didn't love you as God. He didn't say anything like that. He just feels sorry for himself. And the only redeeming quality is that he's going to have some compassion for his brothers. But let this be clear. Hell is not redemptive. People don't go to hell and spend some time there like a purgatory, getting their act together, changing their attitudes, and then choosing Christ. That does not happen. That's not biblical. And if you hear any preacher say that, you must reject that unless they can prove to you in here. See, this, this term, weeping and gnashing, that we saw in, in Luke 13. Weeping and gnashing. A lot of you guys have probably heard that term. Weeping and gnashing. What is gnashing? Well, the only other time Luke uses the word gnashing in the Greek is in Acts. And it's after Stephen finished his sermon, indicting the Jews. And what, the, what happens? They throw stones to stone him, and it says they were gnashing their teeth at him, furious and angry. What's going on in hell? Is hell right now full of choruses of people saying, have mercy on us, God, I'm sorry. No, they're cursing God. They're further hardened in their anger and rebellion towards him. You got to get out of your mind that hell's full of people who are sorry and they want a second chance and God is just this unmerciful, unjust God saying, they're sorry, you messed it. You didn't live for my glory. I'm a megalomaniac. I care about my glory. You did it. No, no, no. They are further hardened in their wickedness. You see this throughout the book of Revelation. Every single time severe judgments come on to the people, what they do? They harden their heart and they further rebel against God. I think this is so important because the World History Channel will kind of present a picture that God is just this unmerciful God who's just, who just tormenting these people, these, all these poor people who, who want to love God, who want a second. No, they do not want that. They want to get out, but they don't want God. Their hearts are further hardened in their rebellion. And the finality of this judgment is further clarified in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Great chasm. Imagine a great valley that no one can cross in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Listen, there is no changing of addresses. If you're in heaven, you're in heaven. If you're in hell, you're in hell. There is no switching. That's why it's so, so important, church, so important, visitor, that you know where you're going. Because there's no second chances then. There's a second chance right now. But there's not second chances once you die. Now, we need to truly dive into the real reason why the rich man is in hell, in Hades, and Lazarus is in heaven. Let's look at verse 27. Why? Why, why is this the case, really? And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that... 
he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Listen, the rich man is under the presumption that if you could send a dead person back to warn his brothers, that they would waken up from their sense state, their sinful state, and repent. And that logically makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, like, forgive my language, but wouldn't someone, seeing someone come up from the dead that you knew, scare the hell out of you? Right? It would. His, his logic makes sense from my perspective. Yeah, Abraham, send Lazarus and scare the hell out of my brothers because I don't want them here. But, but look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. The rich man doubles down. He tries to convince Abraham of the logic, the unfallible logic. His brothers would repent if they saw a ghost. And a lot of us share that. I mean, how many times have you said with the atheists, I've done this many times, yelled out, God, if you're real, show me a miracle or do this. If you would only do this, if you would only restore this, and if you only give me this, I will serve you and love you and believe in you. Do this, God, and I will believe. But what most of us do not realize, the issue is not evidence or needing to experience a miracle. The issue is a hard heart. The issue is not wanting God to be king. The issue is wanting to be your own king, your own God. Like, this literally happens in John 11. Do you remember another guy named Lazarus? I think it's coincidental, but it's interesting. There's another man named Lazarus who dies. And he's resurrected in front of tons of people. And what happens with the Pharisees when they see this resurrection of a dead man? They further their hearts to harden their hearts towards Jesus and plan to kill him. So don't, don't, don't pass this, this lie to think that if you could just see a miracle, then you would serve God and trust him. No, no. What, what, does they say? what do they say here? What, what do the brothers need in order to repent? What do you and I need? Verse 31. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The issue, their issue, though having lots of access to God's word, is that they refuse to listen to it. What, what are the two commandments that Jesus says sums up the whole Moses and the prophets? To love God with everything and love people like you love yourself, right? So the big issue was not only that the rich man neglected the poor. That was important. The key issue is that he did not heed God's word. That includes care for the poor. The fundamental issue is a rejection of God and his word, not heeding and listening to his word. So this passage, let's be clear, is not teaching that someone who is merely generous to the poor will find themselves in heaven but the one who loves God and follows his word. Listen, there are a lot of rich people who love like Jesus, who are like Jesus. And there are a lot of rich people who are wicked. On the other hand, there are a lot of poor people who are wicked. And a lot of poor people who love Jesus. It's not about the station. It's about the heart. But the station, let's just be clear, can really influence your heart. (laughs) So what is needed is not for you and I to be in a certain tax bracket or for us to have a visitation from the afterlife, but for us to take God at his word. God's word is enough on his own to heed and to listen to. So if you're here waiting for a miracle, stop. The miracle is right here. God has already spoken in his word. 
And if you will not heed his word, it doesn't matter if you get healed of cancer or if a miracle comes down from heaven right in your face, you will not listen because your issue is a lack of obedience to God's word, his heart. Your heart is not surrendered to him. It's not about evidence. So yeah, we pray for miracles. I pray for manifestations of his power to confirm God's word. But at the end of the day, the greatest miracle is a change of heart that we need. That's what we need. But here's the big problem. None of us here loves God as we ought to, church. None of us listens to him perfectly, nor cares for the poor like we should. So how can we be saved from the same fate as that rich man? How can I be saved? Let's talk about the final barrier and another great reversal. Jesus crossed a barrier for us. Not from heaven to hell or hell to heaven, but from heaven to earth. There has never been such a great change of station. Jesus, the king of the universe, on a throne, leaves that throne to be a naked, vulnerable baby. What a change of scenery. What a crossing of barriers. Consider this change. In his life, he did not feast like a rich man, but rather lived a life of suffering, poverty, and ultimately rejection and betrayal by his own people. His life did not seem like the blessed life. You remember in the beginning I asked, how do you know if someone's life is blessed or favored? In fact, Isaiah said his life was, he was considered cursed. He, he was one who people hid their face from, that people despised, that people considered him nothing. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Jesus traded his royal crown for a crown of thorns. And instead of being treated like royalty, he was treated like a terrorist. Would you believe there's actually one more reversal that's even greater than the incarnation of Jesus? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That through Christ that we could be made right with God. That we could be the righteousness of God. There is no greater reversal than this on the cross. Listen, Jesus, I'm about to wrap up. So if you're checking out, get in with me here. This is so important. Jesus, the innocent, perfect one, who was only ever kind, just and generous and pure, was treated as if all he ever did was being cruel, unjust, stingy, and impure. Jesus reverses the curse by taking the curse upon himself. Why? Why? Why would he do such an insane thing so that all of us here who trust in Christ, that we ourselves, who are selfish and greedy and impure, would be made righteous and treated like all we ever did was right? <laughs> Jesus experienced hell so we can live with him in heaven. And when he returns, we who should have stayed his enemies and cast into hell will reign with him as his family forever on this earth. What a reversal. What a savior. This is insanity. This is the, the, the scandal of the gospel. And I want to end by addressing three types of people here. To those who are not following Jesus, who are not heeding his word with your whole heart, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Who, who is like this God? Who is like this Savior? Who is sweeter and more precious and more loving? He will be a better king than you are. I promise. Why, why would you continue your rebellion and your, your ways? If, if you want to have peace with this God, hell does not have to be your fate because you're still alive. You're hearing this. Come talk to someone today. Don't leave. Second, to those living with a divided heart, 
Remember, in our passage, Jesus makes it clear that there's either love for God with everything or nothing. It's either devotion and love or hatred and despising. We may try to come up with other middle ground options, but they do not exist. If you are a professing Christian here and have other lovers that are competing with your love and allegiance to Jesus, you are in danger of hell. And I say that with all my heart. If you have other competing loves, there is no Jesus has me on Sunday and the rest of the week is mine. There is no Jesus has my tithe, but the rest of the money is mine. If he doesn't have all, he has none. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. There's no other way. You can either have all of him and you will have so much joy and peace or you can have none of him. And what I find is too many Christians try to live in between and so they're miserable. That's why the Christian life is so joyless and there's no power because you're halfway in, halfway out and you will not have the power of the Holy Spirit. So if there are compromises in your life, darkness that you are hiding, you are in danger of hell and I say that with all the love of my heart. But unlike the rich man, you are still alive and you have time. So don't leave until you're right with God. And finally, three quick words to the church. Really quick. One, let us be grateful for the faith that Jesus saved us from. Let us. Let us let hell be a constant memorial of God's kindness towards us. Two, but also awaken to the fate of our loved ones. Our friends, our classmates, co-workers. This is their fate unless they trust and believe in Jesus. And perhaps unless you open your mouth. For as Apostle Paul says, how can they believe that they have not heard? And church, maybe you haven't opened your mouth. If you say you believe this word in all of it, then that means you believe in hell and its reality. And if you believe in hell and its reality, how can we stand with cold hearts towards our friends and family who are perishing on their way? to a terrible, terrible death that will never end. Church, let's open up our mouths. God, help us. And number three, I started the sermon saying, asking, how do you know if you have favor with God? Truly, church, on this side of eternity, you can't always tell from the outside. You can't, always. Your life may be full of trials and suffering, but take heart. Heaven's coming. New Jerusalem is coming. God's going to make all things new. He will heal every broken heart, every broken body, every wound, every relational betrayal you've suffered, everything that's so costly. Sometimes it's so hard to trust God, guys. Let's just be real, especially with our finances. It's hard to be generous to the poor, but it's worth it. And when we see Jesus one day, I guarantee you, none of us will say, man, Jesus, I wish I sacrificed less for you. I wish I lived more for myself. None of us will say that. In fact, we will be like the, the great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, who at the end of his life, who sacrificed so much, what did he say? I never made a sacrifice. In light of the glories of knowing Christ, we're going to look back on this earth and say, that was nothing. Those sufferings, those sacrifices were nothing compared to the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So let's pray. Father, I want to be faithful to be a messenger, a faithful messenger to your word. I don't want anyone in this room to not be with you forever. I want us to be a family. Every child here, every kid, every visitor, every member. Lord, you, you only know all hearts. You're the one who judges the secret. You know 
And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who, here who's squirming in their seats because your spirit is knocking on their hearts that they would open, they would not resist your call, they would submit to your loving embrace and turn from their sin and their ways and give you the keys to their life. Oh God, pour out your spirit now. For the Christians, help us rejoice in the reality of heaven and what you saved us from and feel the weight of the the fate of our friends and family. And for those who don't know you, Lord, let them feel the terror of hell so that they can see and experience the wonders of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.